Our passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We have been in 1 Corinthians, and I'll speak to why we're not in a few moments. But I hope that you can find the passage on page 1014, and the Bible's there in your seats if you want to use those. Written by Peter, also known as Simon or Cephas, the apostle who walked and spent time with Jesus, who was bold and yet fearful, he now writes to the churches as an apostle. Let's attend now to the reading of God's word from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Forgive the typo. It was just going to be verses 1 through 2. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word to be fed, to be revived, to be strengthened. For outside of ourselves is our hope in you. When inside there is need and there is hunger and there is struggle against sin and temptation. I pray, Lord, that I would speak your word in your way to your people for your glory. Would we receive it as such? In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So why the change? First uh, Corinthians is a wonderful uh, letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. And as with all scripture, it is good and helpful. It's God's word breathed out for correction, for training. And yet First Corinthians speaks to spiritual pride. It speaks to the division that comes from spiritual pride. It speaks to our, the tendency of the church in Corinth to look like the culture around it in sinfulness and disobedience. It's a message for the church not only in Corinth, but for the church today. But I don't know that that is the place of the needs of this church right now. 1 Peter is to exiles, those no longer at home, those who don't feel as if they are at home. And when I look out on this congregation, as I consider my pastoral counseling, the things that I am praying for for this congregation, as I consider my charge to love and shepherd this flock, I know the manifold burdens and experiences of what's happening among us of exile that there are so many of us that don't feel at home right now. That don't feel at home in their bodies as they struggle with sickness and pain. That there are some of you that don't feel at home in your callings, whether as parents or in the places where you work, asking yourself, is this where I'm meant to be? Is this what I am meant to do? Some of you feeling no longer at home in this world as you consider your closeness to the next. 
no longer at home with your loved ones as you struggle with sins done against each other, with divisions and with distance. Most of us feel no longer at home in our country or in our community, which seems so alien in their practices and their beliefs. And it is painful to not be at home. To feel like aliens and strangers in the relationships, in the work, and in our own bodies. That's why I'm preaching from 1 Peter this morning and for the next few weeks. Brothers and sisters, to be exiled is the human condition. Ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion, humanity has lived east of Eden, outside the gates of paradise, no longer at home in the garden with the God who made us. Those to whom Peter writes in today's passage know that experience. They're exiled, most likely for their faith. There are some different possibilities, but I tend to agree with those who understand this as a group of Jewish Christians who have experienced some form of persecution under Claudius, even if it isn't uh, being put in jail. They are the first to be kicked out to the hinterlands to which they have been sent because uh, if you're causing trouble, just push them out of the center of the empire, out of the center of influence. And so, in these various places in the Roman Empire, there are Christians wrestling with the fact that they are no longer at home. That the place where they are residing is not their homeland. And not only is it not home, but they are likely Jews living among primarily Gentile non-believers. And so not only are they different culturally, they're different religiously, they've been disconnected from their jobs and their families, and they feel that difference and that distinction profoundly. Meanwhile, asking how, why. Most of us this morning can understand that. But that experience of exile, that feeling as if we are aliens, does not change our status. That though these men and women feel pushed out, likely were physically forced out of their homes for the sake of the gospel, that their experience of exile does not change their status as those chosen and beloved of God. Experience is not the totality of their status. What we are going through, brothers and sisters, in our various ways this morning and in our weeks and our months, and for some of us years upon years, is not the full reality. And even as Peter writes these words, he is offering comfort to those that walk in faith that this is not their status. And for those who do not yet know Christ, who aren't walking with Christ, it is an invitation to you too who feel alienated, who feel outside, who feel unsettled in your body or in your relationships or in your calling in life. Even as Peter gives us a greeting regarding grace and peace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, he is extending it to them through the reminder of their status in Christ. It's not an empty, hollow greeting. It is a hope-situated truth. 
That though they are resident aliens, though they are exiles, they are the chosen people of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to help us anchor our experience according to the status, to the relationship we have in Christ, and to combat some of the lies that we might be feeling and thinking this morning. The two primary lies that we are alone or that we have been abandoned. 1 Peter speaks to the church of Christ in the first century and in the 21st century that we are not alone and we are not abandoned. First, we are not alone, however lonely it feels in exile. Peter's description of the recipients of this letter is not merely a description, but it's meant to be connective. He calls them elect exiles. That first word, elect, it is chosen. And this was a word that God's people, the Israelites, were very familiar with. Israel was God's chosen people. Ever since Abraham was chosen to be the father of them, and as the covenants were renewed, and as Moses unpacked the law with them, they were reminded that they were God's chosen people. And so as this group who are struggling through their experiences and their situation are wrestling with who they are, Peter uses language that connects them to the history of God's people, the Jews, as the chosen ones. Then he refers to them as exiles. Some translations might use the language of resident aliens. It's not so much that they have been pushed out, but the place that they are living is not their home. It's language that Abraham used of himself in the promised land. When Sarah died and he had to bury her, he had to go to the Hittites and and seek to buy a place so he could bury her because he didn't belong in the land. He didn't own any land there. He was a resident alien. This was language that was used to describe the Israelites. In the laws, they were told to be kind to the sojourner and the alien among them because they themselves were sojourners and aliens. Peter is connecting the churches, receiving this letter to the history of God's people. Even this language of dispersion to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, or maybe you've heard the language of diaspora, This is what happened to the Israelites after they were exiled into Babylon. That that God's people were spread out, and that spreading out continued to shape the history of God's people. Peter is situating these Christians as those who are not isolated. They are not truly alone, but they are partakers of a theme and experience that has been throughout redemptive history as those who are sharing the common experience of those who walk as resident aliens, even as the chosen ones of God. This reminds us that the Bible is not a bunch of fairy tales, nor fables, nor even parables from which we are primarily meant to discern a moral lesson. For all the teaching that there is in Scripture, it is the family history of God's people. Peter is telling these churches, these men and women struggling, you are not alone, but you are joined to the story of the people before you who have walked through similar things. Abraham was promised Canaan. 
This would be his inheritance, but he walked through it, never possessing it himself as a resident alien. God's people, when they were confronted with famine, left the promised land to enter into Egypt and resided there for centuries as resident aliens who lived there but did not belong there. David, the man after God's own heart, who had been chosen to be king, forced out of Judah to live amongst his enemies because of Saul's actions. God's people in exile, including the faithful remnant, not just the bad people who were worshiping idols, not just the people who were oppressing the poor, but the primary experience of the Israelites first in the northern kingdom and then those of Judah in the southern kingdom was to leave their homeland. When we consider the history of God's people, as Peter draws attention to this shared experience for those to whom he writes, he is reminding them that this present chapter is not the end of the story. That what you are going through, what I am going through, what we are going through together, whatever it might be, is not the totality of the story. Abraham's descendants returned and received the promised land. David returned and was placed on the throne as the king that God had promised. Even as God's people were in exile, men like Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego were used of God in the midst as aliens to proclaim the greatness of God as king of all to their enemies, to the emperors who thought they themselves were gods. The death of Peter's beloved friend and rabbi the one whom he had confessed as the Christ upon the cross was not the end of the story. We can look on this passage and know that truth too. One of the things that we often use in worship from time to time is to profess the Nicene Creed. You know where Nicaea is? It's in Bithynia. This place, which is the hinterlands, the wilderness for Christians, in which not only there are, there are not a ton of cities, but certainly not a lot of Jewish Christians, from this place, to which Peter writes as elect exiles, people struggling with persecution and difficulty, would be the place that God would use to profess historic truths about the Trinity. We share in a story that is not over with those that have gone before. And, and Peter is also helping them realize they're not alone, not just that they're connected historically, but as he writes this letter presently. This is who he writes to. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Some of you can use the, the maps in the backs of your Bibles or look these up later online. A lot of this area overlaps with what is present-day Syria and Turkey. Among these areas, some of those places afflicted by the recent earthquakes and aftershocks. 
But in the day of the writing of this, this covers an area roughly equivalent to California. Made up primarily not of large metropolis cities, but small cities without much influence in the uh, empire, without much financial opportunity compared to the places they would have come from. Peter writes to them collectively, not individually. You notice the distinction here between Peter's letter and most of Paul's letters? When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's writing to the church of Ephesus, right? We've been reading 1 Corinthians. It's to the church in Corinth. Primarily one region or one city. And Peter is writing to this place spread out. He writes that they might see that they are not alone. When we are suffering, when we feel rejected, when we are displaced, we are prone to believe the lie that we are alone. Or that no one can understand. And if no one can understand, then no one can help us or walk with us through it. Whether it's a suffering of the body, whether it's persecution for our faith, or even if it's because we're reaping the consequences of sinful choices from which we're finding it hard to escape, you might want to say no one will understand, no one can understand, and therefore help is out of reach. Such isolation leaves us vulnerable. It leaves us weakened. It places us in a position of being open to further attack and further temptation and greater harm. Like a wounded zebra that strays away from the flock. What happens to that zebra? It's exposed to attack from whatever predators might be lurking around like a lion. And later in this very letter in chapter 5, Peter refers to the devil as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In the midst of their struggle, of their confusion about where they are and why they're there and how they're supposed to follow Christ when they've been pushed out, rejected, and are in a place that is not home, Peter says, you are not alone. Israel, God's people went through this. Your fellow Christians in other regions around you in the hinterlands, in, in the rural small places that don't matter in the empire, are going through this too. In the midst of your alienation in a world broken by sin, don't choose to alienate yourself further by denying your struggle or isolating yourself thinking no one else is struggling. Consider the fact that God has called you not only into a community of other resident aliens, but into a history of God choosing for himself a people who are resident aliens, who are waiting and longing for home with God. That means we need to be honest about our struggles, about our pain, about what is hindering us from feeling at home. That is not me encouraging us to gossip or just dump upon each other. But we do need to ask, how will we share hope to the world? How will we bring good news to our neighbors who are suffering in their sin and truly alienated from God? 
who don't have the hope of the gospel, how will we communicate to them hope if we are not learning together how to bring the good news of the gospel and God's word to bear on our own struggles together as God's people? When a community is misplaced or, or, or forced out, when, when a group of people move as immigrants or, or refugees to, to a new land, one of the first things that happens when there's a large enough group is the opening of a restaurant that serves the food that they remember from home. You go to places where there's a large Chinese population, there's more Chinese restaurants, Korean. You can go to Manchester and eat Nepali food. Why? Because when you are away from home, what you desire is a taste of home. And one of the ways, brothers and sisters, we can remember that we are not alone is when we gather together and worship weekly together as a taste of home. You are not alone. You may feel alone. You may feel rejected. But as God's people, you are not nor are you abandoned. God does not leave us in our wandering. He does not leave us in our alienation. He makes a way home. Peter describes what I think can only be called a triune conspiracy to reclaim the exiles, to restore the wanderers, to bring the lost home. Father, Spirit, and Son are described here as those responsible for pursuing and being present to and giving purpose to those who are called elect exiles. This is an invitation for the wayward and an assurance to those who are still making our way home that the Lord of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would set apart to himself a people that can come home. While Peter attributes different aspects of this to different persons of the Godhead, Father, Spirit, and Son, all are consistent with the work of God, who is not only in three persons, but is one. And in God's elective action of these men and women who are considered resident aliens, he demonstrates his pursuit, he demonstrates his presence, and he demonstrates the offering of a purpose. That though we are alienated, though we are not home, we are not abandoned. First, God's pursuit. The people to whom Peter writes are described as elect exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It is according to the Father's foreknowledge. And this language of foreknowledge is not knowing ahead of time. That would be inconsistent with the way that we see it used, but him choosing ahead of time. That the language of foreknowledge always comes before the foundations of the earth. It is indicative of God's choice to pursue for himself a people that he will make his. John Calvin says, this is the fountain and first cause God knew before the world was created whom he had elected for salvation. Whom he had chosen 
whom he had pursued. They might feel lost, they might feel abandoned, they might feel pushed further out, but these are people whom God has chosen for himself. For your friends, or for even some of you who might struggle with the idea of election in Scripture, that God chooses whom he will save and whom he will not save, I will say, let's talk more about that, but we cannot deny that the pursuer of Scripture is God. It is God who called Abraham to himself to give him a land. It is God who rescued his people out of Egypt, sending them Moses. It is God who raised up Samuel in the midst of a generation that was not only lost in its sin, but being led astray by their own priests. It was God who sent his son, into the world to die for our sins and rise from the dead. Even the language of Peter's identification here speaks of this truth. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that as the 12 disciples consider who they are in light of the good news of Jesus as Lord and Savior, the promised Messiah, they begin to identify themselves as apostles, which means sent ones. that God not only works in their lives, but sends them out to pursue other people with the good news of the kingdom. We're not abandoned, but God pursues a people for himself. We also see God's presence with us. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is the act of making holy, and we can talk of this as the process of Christians growing in our holiness. The Spirit helps instruct us in God's Word and empower us towards more and more obedience to conform us to the image of Christ. We use the language of sanctification that way, and that is 100% biblical. But the sanctification process commences through a sanctification event. Or we might use the language of consecration when the Spirit marks off for himself those that are his, when the Spirit is sent into us, regenerating us, making us new, and dwelling with us so that we can be more and more like Christ. And so as he talks about in the sanctification of the Spirit, it is not only speaking of the work of the Spirit, but the presence of the Spirit. You are sanctified in the Spirit, by the Spirit, because the Spirit is with you. As we read in 1 Corinthians, we are the temple of God, the household of God, the place where his presence is known because he places his spirit in us. To the Christians who are wandering, who are far from the temple, if that's where they went to before they were converted, who are apart from the churches in which they gathered, they have not been disconnected or abandoned by God. They are consecrated, marked off, sanctified because His Spirit is in them. God is present to them even in their dispersion. Prayer is an acknowledgement, brothers and sisters, that we are not alone but have God with us. That we're not trying to make our way to God, but God gives himself to us to lead us to himself, to supply and equip us for the journey. 
And so when we pray, asking for help, we do it in the spirit that God has placed in us that draws us towards God and also seals us and reminds us that though we feel like we are lost, though we feel like we are forgotten, that God isn't somewhere that we have to get back to, but God has given of himself to us now. Not only are we given God's pursuit and his presence, but he gives us purpose. When you are uncomfortable, when you're in a new place, one of the first things that you can often struggle is, what do I do? Just think of your first day at a new job. It's not home yet. It's not familiar yet. And you often don't only need to ask what's going on, but I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And you know what you're supposed to do at your household, right? You think when guests come to your house, you know, when I go home, I know where the dishes are. I know where the trash is. I can participate. But when I'm at someone else's house, I, I, I don't know. I need to be told. You know, I need to know, can I participate? Can I help set the table? Can I help cook the food? Can I walk the dog? And in the language at the end of our passage in verse 2, when it talks about for the obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood, he is speaking of God's covenantal purposes for his people. We might want to separate these two things, for obedience and for sprinkling with his blood. But for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, and it seems like this group of people is because of Peter's primary ministry to to Jews, that this language of obedience and sprinkling goes together as covenantal language. That when Moses is used of God to lead the people out of captivity in in Egypt and brings them to the mountain and gives them the law, he then confirms to them the covenant. Here from Exodus 24, 3-8, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Obedience. And Moses wrote down all the words of the law. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Jesus accomplishes for us the ability to walk in covenant with God, to be purified by his sacrifice, his blood making us clean so that we can walk with God, just as Moses sprinkles the blood of the sacrifices on the people. And in the midst of that, they are saying, we will walk with God according to his ways. To be in covenant, to be in relationship with God, is to be made his people to walk in his ways. This is the purpose of Israel. This is the purpose of the elect exiles in Cappadocia and Bithynia in Christ, to walk with God, made holy by the blood of the sacrifice, that they might walk in obedience to him. 
And the language in Exodus 24 is the confirmation of the covenant. But the initiation of that covenant comes a few chapters earlier in chapter 19 where Moses says the words that God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're called to be his special possession. They are cleansed for the purpose of walking with God and walking in relationship to him, in obedience to him, to display that unique relationship and therefore invite others in. Israel wasn't just supposed to be set apart as distinct from the nations, but they were to be distinct from the nations so that the nations would examine Israel and say, who is this people with these laws and who is their God? When Jesus' blood cleanses us and we are made new and able to walk in obedience to him, we are no longer mere wanderers, but we are witnesses in this alien land to the means to find home in Christ alone. In the mid-1700s, medical books began diagnosing a new disease. It wasn't necessarily new, but as more and more people were spreading throughout the world in uh, exploration, and frankly, as more and more wars were being fought as a result of that exploration and expansion, they began seeing this disease popping up. The concourse of depressing symptoms, which sometimes arise in persons who are absent from their native country when they are seized with a longing desire of returning to their home and friends and the scenes of their youth. Homesickness. Or as they described it in Latin and Greek, nostalgia. That there were men who so missed their homelands that they were physically ill. The thing about being homesick, brothers and sisters, the feeling like we're not at home in our bodies or in our relationships that this world is no longer seeming like our home when we feel alienated from it is to acknowledge that this is not home. But that there is a home. That as Ecclesiastes, tell, Ecclesiastes tells us, God has put eternity into our hearts. And we long for home. There is no feeling of exile. There is no sense of displacement apart from remembering home, a sense of the way that things should be. We were meant for relationship with God. Home is in the grace and peace of knowing and talking to God. And until he comes and makes all things new, we will feel homesick. But we are not alone. And we are not abandoned for we are those he has chosen, whom he has washed, whom he has renewed in the blood of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, when we are hurting, when we are alone, when we are afraid, remind us of your love. Remind us that we are yours and that you are with us. This I pray in the name of Christ. Amen.